Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the governor's office and state political reporter for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Bureau are... Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Ann Ryman, I'm the higher education reporter. Dustin Gardner, I cover the state legislature. This week on The Gaggle, the House of Representatives won't release additional records compiled as part of its probe into sexual harassment allegations. University of Arizona's basketball program is under fire after ESPN's report that the FBI intercepted phone conversations where the coach allegedly talked about paying $100,000 to ensure a star player would sign with the Wildcats. Will there be political fallout? But first, voters advanced Republican Debbie Lesko to the general election in the race to replace former Representative Trent Franks. They also elected moderate Democrat Hiral Tepernani over the more progressive candidate. Ron, what does this matchup look like headed into the general election? Well, it's two women, which is uh, a refreshing change. And in some ways, uh, perhaps both of them owe something to the Me Too movement. Uh, Debbie Lesko was in the state legislature and and probably would still be there if not for the implosion of Trent Franks, uh, who went down after allegations of sexual misconduct. Dr. Harold Tepernani, she um, is part of the, the... nationwide sort of wave of women getting more involved in politics as well. So she was a candidate even before the Franks uh, scandal broke, and she is uh, moving forward now as the Democratic nominee. So both these women are are sort of uh, moving upward um, because opportunity and, and, uh, uh, and fate has intervened. On the Republican side, just looking at that at that lineup and our coverage in the final days of voting, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to Steve Montenegro, a former Republican state senator, and his texting scandal. Our reporting and uh, other reports found that he was engaging in pretty flirtatious text messages with a junior level Senate staffer. Was pretty salacious stuff. Do you have a sense, though, of how the scandal played out on the dining room tables as people were early voting or as they were, you know, lining up at schools to cast their their votes? So we're still waiting to see what the final vote tallies will look like and want to look at that more granularly when we have that chance. But the early evidence shows that Montenegro did best in the first round of ballots that were processed. So uh, presumably these are the ballots that were the first ones received and counted, and he was a uh, a reasonably strong second-place candidate at that point. Uh, Fairly close behind him was Phil Lovis. As the night wore on and as we've gotten more of the ballots in, Phil Lovis has actually passed Steve Montenegro um, and was actually running fairly competitively with Debbie Lesko. So there's at least some indication that Montenegro lost steam at the finish line, which is not surprising, all things considered, and also that Phil Lovis may have really kind of picked up not just his own support, but Montenegro's as well to help close the gap with Debbie Lesko. Ultimately, it was too little too late for uh, all the field of Republicans. There were 11 other challengers uh, behind Debbie Lesko, who I think ran a pretty consistent, solid campaign wire to wire. CD8 has traditionally been uh, a Republican stronghold. Is there really a path 
to victory for Hiral Tipernani. And, you know, what, did, what, what does her message have to look like? What does that path look like? It's a good question. Look, the fundamentals just really favor a conservative candidate, and that typically means a Republican in today's politics. And I think that it's a reasonable starting point to assume that that will remain the case. Demo- Republicans have uh, about a 17 percentage point advantage in registered voters over Democrats. So Democrats, to win, need to appeal to a lot of independent voters, maybe even a few Republicans. The Republican energy needs to be lower uh, than it would be all things equal um, for a Democrat to compete. I think Dr. Tipperneni has been good about sort of modulating her message. She's not talking about... Um, stridently liberal, screeching policies that would be uh, really out of step with where the bulk of the 8th District voters probably are. The trick for her is that the voters on the Republican side didn't nominate somebody who is uh, sort of out of step in any huge way either. They might have chosen someone who is more stridently conservative or thumping their chest about how Uh, loyal they would be to the president. Uh, Debbie Lesko certainly intends to follow the Trump agenda, don't get me wrong, but she didn't do it in a way that sort of uh, seemed almost as a caricature of a candidate. So I think that the Democrats already showed uh, a significantly more energy and turnout in the primary than what we've seen in the past. Whether that can translate into enough to actually win the general election, um, you have to assume that that's still a big ask. Well, Democratic turnout was higher than expected. Does that portend anything headed into the normal cycle in 2018 for other races? Yeah, I think it does. This is something to take a look at. Um, We'll, again, want to process these numbers a little bit more, but In 2002, for example, the last time the West Valley Congressional District was open with no clear um, person to hold that seat, um, Democratic turnout was roughly 20 percent. And last night, or heading into last night, I should say, Democrats were already at like 30 percent turnout. So it's significantly higher in a district that still leans very Republican. Um, and Republican turnout was roughly 34% in both of those elections. Obviously, the final numbers will go higher this year for the GOP, but uh, probably aren't going to be nearly as as, uh, high as what we've seen from the Democrats. And I think what's important about this is that in a special election, in a district where Democrats really probably don't have a great shot at winning in the first place, they still showed up, they still showed some passion, and The truth is that Democrats didn't even run a candidate in the 8th District in 2014 and 2016. So the fact that there was even a race was remarkable at all. And I think its greatest impact may come down the line when we get to the fall election. If Democrats continue to be energized and show up in the 8th District, um, however vain it may be as it relates to the congressional election, it could have impact on other elections For example, the governor's race, the uh, Senate race that is open to replace Jeff Flake, the special uh, or the Save Our Schools ballot initiative, if it remains on the ballot. You've got these kinds of other races where we could see uh, some unintended effects if there are uh, vast new pockets of Democratic voters. 
And tremendous amounts of money rumored to be coming into Arizona via Tom Steyer's uh, effort, potentially $25 million. That could really turn out a hell of a lot of Democrats. That's right. Before we jumped into the congressional race, Montenegro was running for secretary of state. He could return to that race. He could not. Do you have a sense of what his next play is? Boy, it's uh, it's hard to say. Montenegro, after the texting scandal broke, really went into the bunker and, and kind of stayed there. Uh, he did not uh, have any interviews with local media and didn't do much to make any kind of uh, inroads at, at tearing down the texting story or some of the other things that were hanging around him. You know, just one of the little pieces that I reported that is um, didn't got lost in the mix is that Montenegro didn't file his uh, financial disclosures that were due at the end of January. He's facing a, the $500 maximum fine for that. That actually brings a, the um, possibility of criminal prosecution if you don't file. Um, not saying that will happen. But, boy, that's a pretty bad storyline to be dragging into the middle of any political race, whether it's Secretary of State or anything else. The Republican primary for Secretary of State has gotten a lot more competitive since he left to run for Congress. Um, we now have uh, multimillionaire Steve Gaynor, a very wealthy businessman in there, um, and also former State Senator Lori Klein, both of them gunning for Reagan's seat. So it's a much different race. And there is no love lost, let's be honest, between Montenegro, Montenegro and uh, Reagan. She uh, read those text messages and uh, there there was a passage in there uh, about her. And so I, I don't think uh, she or her administration would be willing to uh, cut him any breaks on that fine. Justin, the Montenegro scandal prompted some state lawmakers to raise concerns again about the legislature's lack of certain HR policies, given that he was accused of pursuing this cyber affair with a staffer. Um, There are no written policies that specifically ban these types of lawmaker-staffer relationships um, at the House and at the Senate. Uh, Are changes needed? What are lawmakers saying? Yeah. So as you mentioned, neither chamber has any written policy saying that lawmakers and staffers cannot have sexual relationships. Both chambers say that they have some sort of verbal warning that they give during their um, new employee orientations. Um, But the lack of any sort of codified written policy has several lawmakers in the House, especially pushing for new rules. Um, Representative Maria Sims from Paradise Valley, she specifically, you know, came out uh, a couple of days ago and said that, you know, this is just kind of, you know, very behind the times for us not to have anything on the books. And several people, I will add to that, like during the orientation, they said they were never, they don't remember ever getting that notice that these types of relationships were discouraged. So there's a question there as to whether or not they're even getting that guidance. Right. Yeah. I, I asked around and several people that I spoke with said they can't remember ever hearing that during their orientation. So I don't know how much this has been a, a real practice at all. So one thing that strikes me as interesting and, and also sort of reflects the behind the times um, aspect of this, the Montenegro relationship with the staffer did not have any physical component to it, as far as we know. 
And if that continued to be the case, if this was a cyber affair, for example, is that even out of bounds with these things? The, the, what passes for inappropriate needs to be re-examined as well. That these things are something that um, are, are rapidly evolving with technology, it seems. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's one that the House and the Senate are going to try to address now that they have a panel of lawmakers looking at writing a code of conduct to put some of these rules in place. Um, and when I spoke with House Speaker J.D. Mesnard about this, that was one area he specifically addressed, saying that even if it's a, you know, these are just digital activities that to be in line with modern times, there needs to be some sort of policy. In his words, he said, you know, there's no difference if this is a digital violation of the code of conduct or a physical violation, it still needs to be prohibited in the rules. Dustin, leadership in the House and Senate seem to have really approached this issue differently. House Speaker J.D. Mesnard seems to have really taken a hands-on approach. He's listening to different perspectives inside his chamber. He is acting on something tangible. The Senate President, uh, Steve Yarbrough, seems to have approached this differently, less publicly, if at all. Um, Do you have a sense of whether the Senate President is taking this issue and these concerns seriously? Well, the response in the chambers has been very different from the outset of, you know, the whole, ever since the Me Too movement sort of kind of, uh, you know, hit at the state capitol last fall, Mesnard has been very proactive in terms of updating the HR policies. You know, he's kind of said that that the legislature needs to come into modern times with it, you know, and have actual HR policies on the books. Um, but the Senate president has been much more quiet um, about the whole, the, this whole realm of issues. Um, and, you know, even last week when the Montenegro scandal was unfolding, the Senate president was very notably silent about the whole ordeal. Um, and, you know, we had a story come out over the weekend that pointed out this lack of policies in both chambers. And it wasn't until Tuesday afternoon when um, Yarbrough and Mesnard put out a joint statement saying they were going to have a, a panel of lawmakers look at this code of conduct. It wasn't until then that Yarbrough finally spoke out publicly. And just to underscore this point, Don Shooter spent much of his legislative career in the state Senate alongside Steve Yarbrough as well. And that's where much of his conduct got started and continued unabated. And it's something that whether the the final straw occurred in the House or the Senate, clearly the conduct has just been endemic throughout the legislature. And for one chamber to essentially bury its head in the sand is sort of uh, revealing as to the the mindset of of how to respond to these kinds of issues. The House, to its credit, has uh, owned up to a problem that they could no longer uh, deny. It seems as though the Senate is sort of being dragged into the sunlight. And I think this announcement that both chambers are going to draft a code of conduct together, it's kind of a victory for some of the women that have spoken out about this. You had representatives Michelle Eugenti Rita and um, Kelly Townsend. Uh, for, you know, for months they've been saying that there is a disparity in the way that both chambers handled, handle this. And so now that there is going to be a, a common set of rules, it's really a victory for them. Let's not forget about the sexual misconduct scandal over at the House involving Eugenti Rita and Shooter. Uh, The Arizona Republic for weeks has been seeking the underlying documents used to put together the 82-page report that led to Shooter's expulsion. The Republic has been seeking these records to 
get a clear sense of the evidence used to put together the report. And other Republican lawmakers now are asking that that information be released as well. Representatives Kern, Cobb, and Sims uh, all say that because this report was publicly funded uh, and uh, that there are serious allegations, potential uh, wrongdoing, uh, violations of state statute, that this that, that this evidence needs to be released. Why won't uh, Speaker Mesnard release these underlying documents? Mesnard has continually stressed that there were confidential sources in the investigation, and he's concerned that releasing these underlying records would somehow expose those sources or violate the you know, the agreement of anonymity that was offered to them. Um, but yeah, like you said, you've got several prominent Republicans saying that this was a taxpayer-funded investigation, and we haven't seen any underlying documents for the 82-page report. Not We're not just talking about the confidential portion um, the whole thing, not, nothing's been produced. What type of information do you think might be contained in these records? So Representative Kern specifically um, emphasized the part about Eugenti Rita um, and the kind of you know vague details in some portions of, of the allegations involving her and Brian Townsend. He's you know wanting to see what's underneath that. He's asked law enforcement to look at that incident. Um, and then, you know, just even beyond that, we really don't know what, what else is out there. I think people, lawmakers that have brought this up, you know, are saying if there are additional accusations, we believe to know. And there's also, you know, the concern of wanting to see how the process unfolded. We've got an 82-page document um, that states that investigators talked with about 40 sources. There are far less than 40 sources in that report. Who else did they talk to? What sort of tips did they get that led them on the roads that they went down? So just a lot of unanswered questions that hopefully at some point the records will provide answers to. We should say, too, that uh, those Republican lawmakers that we mentioned have met with uh, an investigator from the county attorney's office. Um, we do not know how an investigation, if there is an investigation, is moving forward, but we will continue to ask. And the University of Arizona's basketball program is under fire after ESPN's report that the FBI intercepted phone conversations where Coach Sean Miller allegedly talked about paying $100,000 to ensure that a star player signed with the Wildcats. Really, the big question coming out of ESPN, or that report at least, is how the reporters came upon the wiretap information. What do you know about that? Yes, these wiretaps, you know, the information is not widely available. So, you know, the rest of the media can't go in and look at them and or listen to them and figure out, you know, what was the conversation. Uh, there's also, to our understanding, there's not transcripts of these wiretaps available either. So, uh, again, it's based on this one report from this uh, source. Uh, nationally, there's been, uh, the last several days, there's been some speculation on, you know, is this a solid story? Uh, for instance, originally this story had these conversations taking place in 2017. People pointed out, well, at that time, the, the, this five-star recruit that they were talking about, DeAndre Ayton, 
he had signed with the University of Arizona in 2016, so it, the timeline wouldn't make sense. Um, ESPN has since corrected that and said, oh, these conversations took place in 2016. Um, so there are a lot of questions out there. You know, the Board of Regents over the weekend held an emergency meeting, which is highly unusual for them. And they basically said, you know, we are concerned about these reports. However, we want to move forward with facts. Um, so presumably what's happening now is they're gathering facts on exactly what is the true story here. Well, the, there was some also, also some misinformation about the provisions of Miller's contract with the university. You had that real story there. Can you kind of take us through what the misinformation was and what the real story is with that contract? Sure. There was a tweet early on uh, that basically said Miller would get $10 million if he was fired for cause, which on the surface makes absolutely no sense. You know, no college would structure a contract with a coach that way. Um, and this was picked up by other media. You know, people were looking at his contract saying, you know, oh, there's some vagaries here that could be interpreted this way. Um, we put the, uh, you know, the question directly to the university and they said, no, you know, if, if a coach is fired for cause, it's the same way as, uh, you know, many people in the business world, you know, you work through Thursday, you get paid through the end of Thursday. And if you're fired for cause, you're done. Um, and so, again, that's still something that's circulating out there, though. But, you know, the university has, has assured people that if, if that were the case, and again, they have not moved it at this point to fire Sean Miller, um, but if that were the case, you know, he would not get a $10 million payout. I know you can't tip your hand or what you know about this, if, if anything, I, I should say, but I, I'm sure you do know something. Miller didn't coach Saturday night's game. And he wasn't at practices earlier this week. Do you have a sense of his future, what his future looks like at the university? Well, you know, Arizona Wildcat fans are just literally on the edge of their seats. Uh, you know, one person I talked to about this said, you know, he's just heartbroken over the whole thing. And so, you know, they are very anxious to find out what's going to happen here. Um, you know, essentially, basically, you know, we're looking at, at three things happening. Either um, Miller returns, in, in which case the university would have to give, a, a, you know, kind of a vigorous defense as to why we believe that he should be here and he should be our coach. Um, or we may have a period where, uh, as you saw over the weekend, where he's not coaching, you know, there's no official change to his status, but they're still trying to work out, you know, what the facts are here to make a decision. Um, and, you know, again, the other scenario is that, you know, Miller would no longer be the coach. Politically speaking, a contingent of Republican lawmakers have long talked about wanting to reform the way the universities are, are governed and overseen. Could this controversy, combined with the sports-related payouts and then allegations of wrongdoing by former UA coach, uh, football coach, give these Republican lawmakers ammunition to advance this conversation about how to reform or retool how universities operate down here? Yeah, I think these lawmakers have made it pretty plain that they want to do something on higher education. And the idea that uh, a very expensive contract or a sports case that has been on the news nationally um, becomes the, the jumping off point for that is not hard to imagine. Um, frankly, uh, these representatives have been uh, itching for a fight, and, and if the universities want to hand it to them, I, it would not shock me if they tried to take the ball and run with it, if I can use a sports metaphor. It's not clear that that's going to happen, uh, but 
let's be honest, the University of Arizona right now, their athletic program is a dumpster fire. They are in, in national circles looking disgraceful. The situation with the football program, the situation with the basketball program is akin to Michigan State's troubles right now. They're, be, they're dealing with very serious issues, and the university is seen as being behind the curve on this. That is exactly the kind of landscape that begs for legislative intervention. Whether that happens remains to be seen, but uh, this is the kind of thing it can't be lost on the university officials that they need to be in front of this and take control. And this isn't the only issue where um, legislators might have some tensions with university officials. There was a pretty heated exchange in Republican House caucus um, last week um, dealing with a bill that would limit some of Arizona State University's ability to offer um, tax exemption to development on university property. Um, and, just, and it was just a very heated exchange among re- Republican lawmakers. You had several saying that, you know, um, Michael Crow, ASU president, is a genius and, you know, the legislature should appreciate what he's done. You had others saying that he's really usurped authority um, and, and grown his role beyond what it should be. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch how that folds out. segment we bring you give us the records ron who are you waiting for records from i'm going to be gentle this week i I just want to see the uh, election results in full i want to get it down to the precinct level and have the final final numbers it's sort of uh an unfair request less than you know a day after the election but i really want to see how this turns out there's just some really interesting uh storylines to to chase on this and i actually want to give a shout out to arizona state university a lot of times i don't even have to put in a formal records request i'll just say hey i'd like this document or i understand you have this report can i have it and i will get it a relatively short period of time and dustin um i won't be as gentle um as everyone else um Back in early November, I requested some records from Secretary of State Michelle Reagan um, related to the cost of her new website um, uh, dealing with campaign finances. She's been touting this website and advertisements recently. Um, it's been almost four months, and they haven't produced any single. They haven't produced a single document in four months. So hopefully, they get on that soon. Ridiculous! I am going to give shout-outs to three people. One. Andrew Wilder over at the Department of Corrections turned around within a couple of hours information that we sought related to a former uh, inmate. Two, Norm Moore over at the Senate turned around a records request within a day for uh, records related to Montenegro's trip to El Salvador, which he referenced in the first batch of text messages that we got. And three, Justin Riches and Matt Specht over at the house for ponying up some uh, text messages uh, that we uh, were seeking as part of another story involving inappropriate behavior. So thank you very much. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can find me at 
Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. You can find me at Ann Ryman. It's Ann with an E. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Nick Serpa. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.